Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is James Fowey. Hello. And this is Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots and the links of the stories. Today we are talking about Snow White. Yeah. Snow White is the 1937 animated film that is given credit for starting the Disney Empire. It is the first full-length animated film and the first film to gross a billion dollars at the box office. Based on the Grimm's fairy tale, Little Snow White, it is the story of a beautiful princess named Snow White whose jealous stepmother tries to kill her when a mirror proclaims Snow White the fairest of them all. Snow White runs away into the forest and finds a home in a cottage where seven dwarves, each with a distinct personality, live. The queen discovers Snow White is still alive and disguises herself as an old woman. She then tricks Snow White into eating a poisoned apple, which kills Snow White. The no, it doesn't kill Snow White. <laughs> well, that's a, a, you must not have been paying attention to the story. No, you wouldn't let me finish. Let me finish. The dwarves kill the queen but cannot revive Snow White, so they build a glass coffin and leave her there since she is too beautiful to bury. A prince, who has already fallen in love with Snow White when she was living at the palace, has been searching for her ever since, finally finds the dead princess. He gives her a kiss, and unbeknownst to all, it was the antidote to the poison that killed the princess. Snow White wakes up, rides off with the prince, and they live happily ever after. Now, per our new format, we are linking Snow White with The Dragon Prince, which is a new animated TV show on Netflix. From the makers of Avatar The Last Airbender. And I am going to discuss Snow White, its story, its different iterations, and how it is conformed to the culture of the time. And James, you're going to talk about... Well, I'm mostly going to talk about the making of Snow White uh, and the place that... Uh, Walt Disney Studios was in when they were creating it. If there is time, I will talk about the early life and career of Walt Disney. But if you don't hear that in the following segment, that's because Claire made me cut it from the podcast for time, which is totally fair. We'll see what I can do. All right. Well, I want to start today with a quote. This is a very important person. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Kyle Willoughby. Oh, Kyle Willoughby. And in our Black Mirror episode, he said that fairy tales are stories that have a lesson in them, but it is not normally the point of the tale. There are more stories that reflect the time or culture from where they originated. And as Snow White is a fairy tale, and you could say the Dragon Prince itself is a type of fairy tale, I wanted to look at how these children's animated movies or shows reflected their day. Um, and now the f I found the most interesting way to do this with Snow White was to actually look at the Grimm's iteration of Snow White, then how they altered it to fit the morals of their time, and then look at Disney's Snow White and how it changed and fit the 1937 era. Mm. I should say the 1930s era, right? So... Um, as far as the history of the story of Snow White, uh, scholars have traced Snow White's origins to old oral tales that spread all over Europe. I mean, they, an article I read said, as long as tales have been told, there has been an iteration of Snow White. So That can't be true. We'll just take it at that. <laughs> um, actually, some think that the story might have been influenced by real-life noble girls who didn't necessarily get along with their father's new wives and met unfortunate, mysterious ends. So that could have influenced the tale as well. But the first people to really get credit for writing it down, even though they weren't the first to write it down, the first ones that made it really famous were the Grimm's brothers. And they're given credit for basically preserving the story that we know today. 
Um, the Grimm's brothers, for those who don't know, were collecting folk tales from Central Europe in an effort to preserve, preserve an authentic German past. Now, at the time, scholars and linguists and German society as a whole was trying to work out what it meant to be German. This is the early 19th century, and Germany was a relatively new country, and it, beforehand, it had just been a bunch of small provinces. Well, wait, what, what, what year was this that they were going around and collecting these folk tales? Pre-1812, that's when it was published. Oh, wow. So the, so Germany isn't even a nation as we know it today yet at N that point. No, but it was becoming, it was coming into itself. And um, the Grimm stories, I want to point out, weren't actually published originally with children in mind, but for scholars. This idea of these are myths from our past. And let's look at them to see how it made the country that we are now. So throughout the years, the Grimm's uh, fairy tales went through six editions, the first one written in 1812, like I said, and the final one written in 1857. And through the years, they were reworked for children as they became more popular with them. Um, many of the tales became more prudish, and almost all of them became more pious, conforming with the German ideals of the 19th century. So instead of actually pres uh, preserving these uh, original myths or these old myths, I feel like the myths slowly started to shape German society at the time and the morals and values or of it. Or be shaped by German society yes. at the time. That's a better way to put it. So I want to look at the original Snow White story. It was published in 1812 and it was called Little Snow White. A queen wishes she had a daughter that was white as snow, red as blood, and as black as the wood of the embroidery frame. And she gets what she wants, a little girl named Snow White. This queen also has a mirror, and she asks it every day, who is the fairest in the land? Um, and the mirror always tells her that the queen is the most beautiful, until one day he tells her that Snow White is the most beautiful, and continues to tell her Snow White is the most beautiful every day, until the queen just can't bear it anymore, and she tells a huntsman to kill Snow White and bring back Snow White's lungs and livers so the queen can eat them. The huntsman takes pity on Snow White because she's so beautiful and lets her run away, and he takes back the lungs and liver of a boar to the queen, which she eats, thinking they are her daughter's lungs and liver. Snow White runs to a cottage where everything is neat and orderly, and she helps herself to the food and sleeps in a bed, the doors come home and they find her, but because she is so beautiful, they decide to keep her if she will keep house for them. They are miners and they dig during the days and they leave her. The queen, of course, because of the mirror, finds out that Snow White is still alive because she is still not the most beautiful woman in the land. So she decides that if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. And she disguises herself and tries to kill Snow White multiple times and the doors save her each time first she gives her a corset that you know she disguises herself as a peddler gives her a corset that cuts off her air she gives her an another, just just a regular corset I know. <laughs> um, another time in a different disguise she gives her a poison comb um and the doors keep on having to come and save snow white and they're telling her don't let anyone in the house don't talk to anyone and despite all of these warnings and all these close calls Snow White still takes an apple from a peasant woman. Turns out it's the queen. The apple is poisoned. It kills her, and there's nothing the doors can do to save her. She's so beautiful, though, they make a glass coffin and put her in it. 
Now Prince happens to be going by and he sees dead Snow White and just falls in love with her. She's so beautiful. And he takes her to his castle and has his servants follow him around all day carrying her. Now, as you can imagine, this is a pain in the butt for servants. What? One of them gets so frustrated. Yes, he slaps Snow White. The apple becomes dislodged from her throat and she comes back to life. Wait, one of the servants slaps Snow White in the face. Dead Snow White yes. that he's been carting around for his master, the prince. Yes. He gets angry at the prince and takes it out by slapping. Well, he gets frustrated with the situation. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, it's it works out. She marries the prince the next day. The queen, what happens to that servant? Anything? Uh, no. Oh, my goodness. The queen realizes that she's alive and decides to attend the wedding. Uh, but is given hot iron shoes and told that she has to dance in them till she dies. And that's how the story ends. Oh, my goodness. So the queen says, the daughter that I wished for and, and my magic wish was granted, she's alive. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad. And I'm going to go to her wedding? It's not clear why she went to the wedding. It might have been to kill her again. You know, she's still the fairest in the land. So right, I, right. And she shows up at her wedding like, hey, I figured I was invited because I'm your mom. And they were like, did you think we forgot? <laughs> Here's some hot iron shoes. <gasps> oh, my gosh. All right. Um, so that was the original tale that came out in 1812. But there were some changes made and pretty quickly as it became more popular for children. And that's what I want to focus on and how this tale reflects its time. Um, one of the first changes, uh, you can probably guess, is the queen has changed from Snow White's mother to her stepmother, and it makes her much less evil. Um, in fact, the Grimm's made a lot of the tales in their stories a lot more sympathetic to family members uh, because the um, the fathers and the mothers didn't necessarily come off the best in some of these early tales. Oh, so it's about a lot of the early tales are about some bad parents, some yes. genuinely bad parents, yes. and they didn't want to have these stories. Well, I guess they didn't. They didn't even originally intend the stories for children. I no, think you were no. Telling me. Oh, okay. And this is a quote from Marina Warner uh, from Beast uh, from in an article she wrote from Beast to Blonde to the Blonde. She says um, the bad mother had to disappear in order for the ideal to survive and allow mother to flourish as the symbol of the eternal feminine, the motherland, and the family. And that was the German ideal at the time, that the family the family structure and the mother was this beautiful, perfect, um, you know, caring person. And you couldn't have these fairy tales, these old German myths where a mother would kill her own daughter because she was more beautiful. Also, um, if she is the stepmother, I can see this. The queen's actions, they are vanity, but they can also be seen as self-preservation. If you read the story, everything Snow White gets is because she's so beautiful. That is the currency that she has. And that is probably the currency that the queen has always had, is she's that beautiful. If she is surpassed by Snow White, maybe she'll be replaced by her in some way. So the queen can be seen as maybe trying to preserve her own power. Right. Well, cycle of life and death, eventually she is, mothers are replaced by their daughters if things go according to uh, the plan. How so? Because eventually a mother is going to die and she's going to leave behind her children. And they're going oh, to I was be thinking, the new mother of their own family, perhaps. But I was the, thinking daughters marrying fathers. And no, that no. Was where I was going. Um, okay. Also, good for the queen that at one point she was the most beautiful. And if she wished for a daughter, it would just appear. 
Right? I mean, was it like she bore the daughter? I'm, I think she bore the daughter. Oh, she just, and she just got exactly what she wanted. Right. I know I didn't read the Grimm's original fairy tale for this. Um, I read multiple iterations of it on the internet. <laughs> um, but I'm pretty sure she bore it. She did oh, bore never mind. the daughter. Okay. Now, another change, which I think James <laughs> called out a little bit, was instead of the apple getting slapped out of Snow White's mouth by a servant, it pops out when a servant stumbles while carrying her coffin. Way better. I was just thinking if I were the prince and I saw somebody slap so the dead back, body of the woman I'd been in love with. Right. So back my in 19th century Germany, it was disrespectful to slap royalty no matter how dead they were. Um, folk tales tended to come from the peasant class. So when this was, was there a period where it was okay to slap royalty, where everybody just kind of let it slide well, a little? Well, I'm about to explain. <laughs> Folk tales came from the peasant class. So if this was told between two people of the peasant class, oh. it might, you know, it might even be a fantasy of theirs that this ridiculous lord is making me do these crazy things, and then I slap someone. Oh, right. That makes sense because these tales aren't by the nobility; they are no, by the people. Peasants. And they were told orally. So if someone from the peasant class was going to tell someone from the noble class this story. They would just change it to fit the audience. Right. Um, but, of course, in a children's story, you couldn't pass down that someone slapping a noble was a good idea and resulted in fine things happening for everyone. Saving the kingdom. Yeah. Well, saving the princess, really. Yes. Um, and I think this, that's kind of my look at the Grimm's fairy tale, but I think you can see how it did align with the Christian morals of the time where evil got what was coming to it and good was rewarded. And how it was edited um, so that improper thoughts and ideas wouldn't be stimulated in the minds of the young. You know, let's not have them, you know, thinking that mothers can be evil. And let's not have them thinking that servants will go around slapping royals. Is Snow White particularly virtuous in these tales besides her beauty? Does she have something going for her that is winning? I think she's just a good, sweet girl. Is she? Yeah, yeah, okay, she's, that's, that's she's good. She is okay. good. She is very good. She is docile. She is sweet. You know, she she's a good person. She is the good that triumphs and the queen is the evil. Because I'm thinking about the animated version. Are, are we going to talk about that? Yeah, time? that's okay. next. All right. Sorry, I don't want to jump the gun. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go through the plot of the animated version. I am assuming that most people have seen it. If you haven't, I do recommend watching it as kind of a cor- the cornerstone of, you know, animated movies today um but i want the world over yeah i want to look at the world in which that cartoon was made um it came out in 1937 um america was going through a depression and an escalating world conflict that would eventually lead to world war ii and at the time women had to take matters into their own hands at the urging of eleanor roosevelt the president's wife Men weren't actually making enough to support their families, and women were going into the workforce in new numbers. And their work meant something different than it ever had before. They were able to contribute in a way that they hadn't been able to in in American society before. Um, And Snow White is really a Depression-era princess when you look at it. She starts off wearing rags. The queen dresses her in rags because she's so jealous of her. Um, And... But even though she's in rags and she's doing chores, she's in great spirits. She's plucky despite her bad circumstances, which was an American ideal at the time. Mm. Um, And she uses the skills that she has to the best of her ability. She is a great domestic um, goddess, I want to say. She's a great domestic help. Yeah. And she... Working class nobility. (laughs) Right. Yeah, a princess who is great at scrubbing some floors. But she uses that to get 
uh, to get where she needs to get in life. She uses her domestic skills to get in with the doors. They appreciate that she can make their house clean. Instead of in the original Grimm's fairy tales, I don't know if you remember, but she comes into a neat and orderly house. Right. In the Disney tale, she comes into a very messy house. And because of her skills, she is able to make it clean. And the dwarves are happy to keep her because she has improved their lives so much. There's also the difference that in the Disney version, they know that their lives will be threatened if they keep her. So it's not, it, it sounds a little callous in the original fairy tale where they're like, look, we don't need you, but you can stay because you're so pretty if you're willing to cook and clean. In the Disney version, it's more, this is a enchantingly beautiful person who's really sweet, who's doing these good things for them and their lives are at risk, but it's worth it because she wins them over. Like in a mm-hmm. more, I think, charismatic way. And I I read that that was something that gave Snow White more agency and made it a little less creepy. You know, in the cartoon version. Um, Also, she is very spirited. She is beautiful, but it doesn't go to her head, even though she knows it. She's demure and not pushing for social change. Essentially, the ideal 1930s woman. Um, They were expected to be passive and submissive and happy in a domestic role, which Snow White certainly is. She's also so happy to be working and cleaning the house. And I read what she does called a Depression-era work ethic. And... Actually, the dwarves have it too. They are happy to be working in the mines. They sing. They don't complain about the work. To be fair, those dwarves are rich. (laughs) It's the first thing we thought we were watching the film and we saw the dwarves and we see all the gems that they have just piling up. It's like, oh my goodness. It's in one of the first lyrics of the song is about getting rich by working. (laughs) Yeah, and they are. They're doing quite well. But... It's it's funny because Snow White really is a rags to riches stories. It's kind of a fantasy of having nothing. Even though she's a princess, she's dressed in rags, she has nothing. Mm-hmm. And by the end, by being this ideal woman, she marries a prince and is going to live happily ever after through hard work and a good attitude and beauty. Yeah. So that's uh, my segment on how Snow White reflects its time. I am excited to look into the Dragon Prince and see how it reflects now because it's a whole different set of values. Yes. And um, I didn't mention this at the beginning of the podcast, but part of how our production segment relates is that, you know, a, a look ahead to our future production segment on the Dragon Prince. One of the biggest criticisms that it's had is uh, its animation and the low frame rate and how choppy it is, which the creators say is a stylistic choice and other people say is them saving money in a way that doesn't look good. Um, And so I think it's very interesting to look back at the first uh, American feature-length animated film, one that was a fantasy story like The Dragon Prince is, and look at how it was made and the higher frame rate that it was produced in, in 1937. Well, tell me about it, James. I certainly will. Uh, So, um, (laughs) here's the bit that may get cut out. (laughs) Walt Disney's early life and career. Here we go, we're gonna blitz through it. Born in Chicago, spends a childhood in Missouri, then goes back to Chicago for high school. And in high school is the first time that Walt actually starts taking these art classes. He gets to be uh, a cartoonist, for the school newspaper, but he drops out of high school to try to serve in World War I in 1916. Uh, They won't take him because he's too young, so instead he goes and drives an ambulance for the Red Cross in France during World War I. I think he made the right choice. I mean, I, I, yeah, maybe, I guess. Well, all right, fine. Anyway, (laughs) we can't get bogged down in World War I in this podcast. 
We bounce him back. He comes home and his brother Roy gets him a job at an art studio in Kansas City where he gets to meet other cartoonists, gets to actually have an art job for work, which is incredible when you think about him being a teenager um, without a high school diploma. And from there, he's able to get a job uh, at an advertising company that does cutout animation for film ads. Uh, and uh, cutout animation is like a stop motion animation in which you use cutout paper. So imagine like claymation, but with little paper figures. Wallace and Gromit with paper? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not high budget stuff. <laughs> Maybe at the time, I don't know. But not tech- not really technically advanced stuff. It's there when he's working on this, doing this commercial work, that he starts experimenting on his own with hand-drawn animation. And eventually, he gets together with some of the people that he had met at that art studio that his brother got him the job at, and they make something called laughograms, these short, funny cartoons that can be played before movies, and they sell them directly to a Kansas City movie theater that plays them before movies that, that show there. And they make money with it, and people like it. And we first encounter this theme in his early career that we'll be touching on, where Walt Disney makes something cool, short, and funny that people like, it has commercial success, and he says, all right, now I get to tell the stories I really want to tell, except that he doesn't. <laughs> so what he does he with the, the success of the Laughograms is he creates a studio called Laughogram. Him and his brother and these other folks that he met, they are uh, producing those, but they're also producing a series of shorts of fairy tales called Alice in Cartoonland. And it's a live action series that has uh, cartoons for the magic aspect of it. Nobody in Kansas City wants these. Oh, no. No one is interested in Walt Disney's silly fairy tales. So they run out of money, but they've made this series. And he says, you know what? Forget Kansas City. We'll take this to Hollywood, see how they like it there. And so he goes there with his brother. A few people follow him over from Kansas City and they start. Uh, the Disney Brothers Studio. And they actually find someone to distribute these Alice in Cartoonland films, someone from Universal. Hollywood did get it. Yes, Hollywood did get it. And not only did they distribute those, Universal said, hey, we want to get one of these cartoon animated animals that everybody's got. Um, So we're going to commission you to make one for us and make uh, short films Mm -hmm. uh, of this. And that is how... Oswald the Rabbit. Oh, I was waiting for Mickey Mouse. No, no. But if you look up Oswald the Rabbit, which I think is worth doing, everyone, you get to see, like, Mickey's rabbit cousin. Like, you can clearly see how Walt Disney went from Oswald the Rabbit to Mickey Mouse. Uh, But this is a good experience for him because he gets to, one, make a funny animated character and get good at doing that. It makes him money um, to support the Disney Brothers studio. And also Universal sells uh, candy bars, Oswald the Rabbit candy bars to go along with these short films. So it's his first interaction with merchandising. Mm. Now, another important lesson comes from Oswald the Rabbit, and that's that it gets taken from him by Universal. And he learns that, oh, I should always own the things that I create. And the way that they did that was that, you know, once again... Disney's getting some commercial success with something. He thinks, all right, now time to tell a different kind of story. 
And Universal said, no, nah, we're not interested in that direction. In fact, we're going to hire away everyone that works at Disney Brothers Studio to work directly for us. And we're going to offer you a job with us working for us, but you won't really be in charge anymore. I and feel a lot of artists have learned that lesson. Yeah, yeah. So he says, no, thanks. I'm going to be, uh, I'll go make something with the people that stuck with me, those people being his brother and their wives. Uh-huh. <laughs> and maybe like a couple, and a couple other people that stuck with him from Can- the Kansas City days. Uh, and he said, I'll make my own character. And that character Mickey is Mouse. Mickey Mouse. So he loses everything. Like 1927, he's lost everything. 1928, he comes out with Steamboat Willie. And the Steamboat Willie is worth looking up. I think a lot of us has prob- have probably seen it already. It's Mickey Mouse's first cartoon. It's Minnie Mouse's first cartoon. And the thing that's really special about it, you see the first couple short films he made of Mickey, nobody wanted Right, But then he had the idea, wait a minute, I will make the first animation where the sound is synchronized to the animation. Steamboat Willie is special technologically, you know? And so, not that it couldn't have been done, but he's the one that did it. And he voice acted Mickey and, you know, everything that's happening with the sound effects in the the show, it's all lining up. And people- So funny to think that Mickey is Walt Disney. Yeah. It makes sense. I didn't realize that. It was something I learned doing this. So um, anyway, uh, now he's got money. I mean, not he's not rich off Steamboat Willie, but it did really well. People knew who Mickey Mouse was. It was impressive. They he's, knew who Disney was. Yes, they knew who Disney was. So now we have Walt Disney Studios. And his brother is still working with him, uh, as is his wife, who stuck with him and helped ink and paint those early Mickey Mouse short films. And he starts to make a series of short films called Silly Symphonies. And this is where we get Goofy and Pluto and Donald Duck. And he makes 75 of these between 1929 and 1939. And these are really important because they, one, are commercially successful, fun, silly things, right? Uh, That give him the money to try to do something ambitious like Snow White, where once again, as soon as he makes that money, time to tell the story he really wants to tell. Uh, but they also give him enough of a reputation that he can not just make money, but borrow money. Because Snow mm. White is going to take so much money to make. And they allow him to technically experiment. So as he's making these 75 shorts, they are uh, experimenting with the technology of animation. getting more, First getting color, then getting more and better colors. Um, experimenting with different ways of shooting the actual images that they're using, which I'll get into for Snow White. These are things that were perfected in the Silly Symphonies. And also, not just the technological aspect, but the artistic aspect of storytelling. That amidst all these Silly Symphonies, they got to tell some fairy tales and folktales that could be a little different and not quite so goofy. Um, Yeah, there's a pun there, yes. and that experience served them for Snow White. And it was it was a place they could experiment in a way that was financially successful and safe because they were shorts. Anyway, uh, after the Silly Symphonies, not after, during the Silly Symphonies, we're making money from Mickey and his friends and all these shorts. Some of the most impactful Disney films ever were Silly Symphonies. You know the Three Little Pigs? Mm-hmm. And the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Yeah. Multiple articles called that the Song of the Great Depression. And ex- oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Anyway, he's got all that going for him when he comes to his animators and he says, I've got an idea. I want to make the first feature-length 
animated film. Now, his brother thought this was a bad idea. His wife thought it was a bad idea. They thought people aren't gonna sit through this. Children won't have their attention held and adults especially won't. Um, but he wants to go ahead with it. And he thought about doing Alice in Wonderland. He thought about doing Peter Pan or Cinderella. They and all it, sound so familiar. Right, well, eventually he gets to check all those boxes. Disney gets to have everything he wants. But at this time, he picked Snow White. Uh, because he thought it had all the things he wanted in storytelling. He thought, there's romance here, and there's going to be a range of emotions. It's not just going to be, we'll find a place to be funny, but people are going to feel real things. They're going to be afraid. They're going to be um, happy. They're going to laugh, cry, all of it. And also, it's uh, a lot of it is set in the woods, and he thought it was an opportunity to animate a bunch of cute woodland creatures. <laughs> Which he does frequently. Yeah, he does. He does, and he does it well. Uh, he also thought, based on his experience doing the Three Little Pigs, where they take a, uh, I don't know if you call it Three Little Pigs a fairy tale, folk tale, um, where in the original, the Three Little Pigs are basically a little group where they're not distinct. And as you mentioned earlier, his w the big thing that he contributes to the Seven Dwarves in the animated version is making the Seven Dwarves these distinct personalities. And that was his idea from the beginning. So... He pitches it to everybody by acting out the entire story, being the witch, being everyone. And people said that, you know, they made a great film, but they felt, some people felt like we never made it as good as Walt pitched it <laughs> in that moment when he acted it all out. Uh, and uh, important adaptation note, he also made it different. And one of the reasons he picked it was because there was a silent film in 1916 that he saw as a boy of Snow White. Um, and they made an adaptation, they made a change to the original story that he also made where uh, the prince has met Snow White mm -hmm. at the beginning of the film. So that when he sees this girl who looks like she's dead and he kisses her, it's a little less creepy because he's already in love with her. It's, so it's a valid change. Yes. And and most adaptations make it and he, and he made it too. So... Let's talk about funding Snow White. We'll try to be quick with this, but Walt Disney comes in and he says, this is going to cost anywhere between $150,000 to $250,000, which at the time of the Great Depression is still a lot of money, mm -hmm. right? It eventually costs one and a half million dollars. And to get that money, they had to take out multiple loans, which is really the job of Roy Disney because he's the more business savvy one. And he tells Walt, look, if they're going to give us this final loan to push it up to $1.5 million and to really get this thing made and finished, we're going to need to show them what they're investing in. We're going to need to show them why we're going to be able to pay them back, how special it is. Let them see the movie early. Walt doesn't want to do it, but Roy wins. They're able to get one banker from Bank of America to come see the film in a solo screening of Snow White before it's fully finished. But to, to get an idea of it, the man sits down watches it, calls Bank of America, says, give Mr. <laughs> Disney the money. <laughs> because he was seeing something that had never existed before. And it's fun when you rewatch it to remember that we're talking, you know, Steamboat Willie was not that long ago mm -hmm. in black and white, and you've never seen anything uh, like this. Um, so he gets the money, and now he's able to finish making it. So I want to finish off before we talk about its incredibly successful release, just talking about, you know, why did it cost one and a half million dollars to make this thing? Why is it so intensive? Well, first off, you know, it's 24 frames per second for smooth animation. 
right? For the record, a lot of anime that I and you, the listener, have watched is animated at 12 frames per second. Okay? Half the frame rate is And they're drawing every light. frame, right? Yeah, every frame, every frame is a drawing. Um, and the Dragon Prince, as we'll talk about in, a, in our next episode, is not animated at 24 frames per second. It takes time and money to do that, whether you're using uh, the computer technology that we have now or hand drawing absolutely everything like they did back then. They had to do over a million paintings and ink drawings to make Snow White. That is time and man and woman power to do that. Uh, in the end, what, about 166,000 paintings were used in the filming of it. But what really blew my mind in the making of this and how painstaking it was, was the sound production on it. Because we all work in engineering to some degree, and this seems like a crazy thing to work on. Sound engineering. Sound engineering, yeah. We all work in sound engineering to a degree, uh, Kyle included. So the entire film is mapped out on an electrical metronome so that every moment in the film falls somewhere in a series of beats that are noted out. So you can know when things are happening and there's a worksheet for everything that shows, okay, every second of this film needs 24 frames. Here's where they fall. Wow. Yeah. And the music has to follow along to that and all the sound effects have to correspond to the frame that the wow. sound should begin. So yeah. no one was doing anything like this. Uh, no, well, Steamboat Willie was the first time that anyone did something right. like this. But for there wasn't an a com- there wasn't a studio that was competing with Disney in this in any kind of way. No, no. I mean, they were doing. Everyone was doing animated films that had sound effects at that point, but not this long. Right. Not to map out a whole movie that had a sweeping score and voice acting and everything else and songs. The craziest thing to me about this is what it meant, not just for sound effects, like, okay, the plate shatters there, what beat of the metronome in between, where does that happen? What frame does it happen and lining it all up? The voice actors had to speak in a rhythmic way while someone conducted a beat to them so that every syllable in that movie begins and ends on a prescribed musical beat. And then that was graphed for the animators. Here's the words they said. Here's the beat they said the syllables to. Now line it up with the frames. And so when you're a voice actor, you have to speak that way while doing a convincing delivery. Which when you know that, voice acting in Snow White's great anyway. Oh my goodness. Yeah. When you consider somebody waving a baton in your face and saying, do it again. You didn't line up syllable by syllable with my baton. Incredible. Uh, so as a voice actor, incredible to me that that was how they had to do that. Uh, so all that costs a lot of money and time, but it's worth it because on its release, it makes $8 million in 1937 and 1938 money, which is a lot. And people are paying what, a quarter to see a movie? Uh, 10 cents for the adults and a nickel for the kids. A lot of people saw this. Yeah, it was something like that. Or a dime for the kids, 25 cents for the adults. Uh, but that's a lot of nickels and dimes to add up to $8 million. It's also the first film that sold its soundtrack in a multi-record set. It's also one of the first films to sell merchandise with it so you can buy your Seven Dwarfs toy because we are beginning an empire here and we need all the money. Starting a grand tradition. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So 
Anyway, people like Charlie Chaplin were calling Dopey a great comedian. People in the theater were scared when The Witch came out. They were crying when Snow White looked like she was dead. They were laughing at the seven dwarves and they were loving the music, rejoiced at the happy ending. It did everything he thought an animated film could do. And continues to do. Yeah. So that's my overlong segment. I'm sure none of you will get to hear all of it. <laughs> uh, but now moving on to, I mean, those re- audience reactions in 1938, blowing their minds. Uh, what did what did we think rewatching it? I had a new appreciation for it, uh, especially with, um, you told me a little bit about your segment and just how exciting and innovative it was for its time. And I already knew this, but watching it with that in mind, when the last time I watched it, I was a kid, it puts the movie in a whole new light. And it, it is dated. It is of the 1930s. And Snow White as a princess isn't the most um, feminist, I would say. She isn't of my time. So she's never anyone that I, I never loved Snow White as a princess as a kid. She wasn't someone I, you know, a princess that I aspired to be. Or identified with, yeah. Yeah, but seeing it in that light, it made me really appreciate that movie. And it is so well done. The work that went into it, the doors are so good. Oh, yeah. And when they show up, I feel like the whole, it's a, it is very much a period fantasy piece up to a certain point, you know, Mm -hmm. where, where she's singing at the well and the prince shows up and the way he sings to her this could this is it seems like very uh classical in a sense um it's not goofy and silly and weird at all yet um and when the dwarves show up marching across the bridge singing their song it's a new movie yeah it's a new movie even them working in the mines but when they're marching and you're doing the camera angle of them walking above you over that log bridge it it's it's so fun it's so exciting it gave me a thrill as a kid and even as an adult i was like no this is great this is great. <laughs> and that the songs are still good. The songs hold up. Enough to buy your phonograph record set. Yeah, but like yeah. the the dwarf song, the hi ho. Oh yeah. yeah, and digging in the mine. Yeah. Yeah. We dig 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 dig. It's it's still so fun to listen to. It is. Oh, and the voice acting, they got radio actors, radio voice actors uh to be the the seven dwarves. And I didn't appreciate as a kid like how good Doc is, and the idea that he's doing jokes of malapropisms, or he's uh, <laughs> he's he keeps mixing up the wrong words, right? He's saying the wrong. He keeps every time he says something, it's a little mixed up, it's a little backwards, and he has to keep trying to say it until eventually he gives up and says a totally different phrase <laughs> that means the same thing. And when you think about having to do that, make it sound believable and also funny. And being conducted the way he was to make sure they could animate yeah. his mouth. It's so impressive. Also the, the queen. Oh, the queen. Oh, she's so good. She was a Broadway star? Uh, I think she was a theater actress and a, and had been in movies. Like she was she was one of the names oh, that was, was in this film. Fantastic. And she does both the queen and the hag that the yeah, queen the witch turns that into she turns... to sell the apple. She's fantastic. Oh, she's so good. And I wanted to say, too, we're going to talk about this with Dragon Prince, about making something that's uh, a fantasy that has darkness in it that that is um, targeted at kids but really is for everyone to be able to enjoy. The queen is scary. 
And the way that people react to her, the way that even her little crow henchman reacts to her, you get, she's terrifying. When she comes down, I, I totally forgot this when I was a kid. When she transforms into the hag and she's walking down the steps to the boat that she's going to row herself because she gets it done herself <laughs> to go out to, to murder Snow White, um, she passes a skeleton in a cell. And the skeleton's arm is reaching out for a little jug of water yeah. and, that is placed. I had forgotten about this too. I Yeah, I didn't remember it at all. Where she had kept a prisoner in a cell and she and she had placed water just out of their reach so that they died almost able to reach the water. And as she walks by the dead body, she says, thirsty and kicks and shatters the water jug towards the skeleton. She's bad. Yeah, she's evil <laughs> and scary. And the thing when he she tells him, go cut out her heart, and the huntsman is over her with the knife poised, looking like someone who could cut out a girl's heart, it is dark and scary. It is. So how did you feel about um, Snow White as a piece of the Depression? It, I, I didn't think of that until you said it and thinking about, okay, you're royalty, you're meant for better than this, and yet here you are in rags scrubbing away. I thought that's a really cool idea for a, de a depression princess, why Snow White actually does fit. Mm -hmm. You know, you know you're meant for more than this, but right now you got to just bite down on your mouthpiece and scrub these floors. And if you have a good attitude and you're nice and you're kind... And just absolutely beautiful. Then you'll get, you'll be fine. You'll get to marry a prince. <laughs> it still counts. It still works. Or maybe go to war. Yeah. that was going to happen too. Oh my goodness. Also doing this research, and I, this is not to necessarily pack my, pat my own back. I feel like Doc when I can't say my words. Um, but it made me appreciate other cartoons and other children's stories because of how looking at them through a historical lens, just how influenced they are by the time that they're made. In. And it seems really obvious, but I feel like when you grow up with them as a kid, you just kind of take them as canon and you don't look at it beyond, you know, a fun story. But as an adult, it's a really interesting way to look at children's stories. It is. Well, we've actually, in talking about Batman before, which is uh, our one of our modern American myths in a way, uh, there's a book that came out about Batman and looking at popular culture through how mm. Batman is handled over 75 years or of also, history. Didn't Superman come out in the Depression? Yeah, he did. Right. He did. That's an, a Depression empowerment story. A Depression era superhero. Yes. Yes. Uh, and and so in, in a way, some of those values are still with us. It's interesting. I We should wrap up this episode. But it was making me think of... Um, the wuxia segment I did for uh, Into the Badlands in that sometimes, even though you're changing the story to fit with whatever is in vogue, the core essence of it, its its base DNA lasts so that the, the moral of an older generation lives on in the stories you still tell right. of them. Because the wuxia stories, they were not something the Chinese government would have had the people telling, but they were tales of the people, by the people, for the people. Right. And so they're able to keep a kind of ideal and moral that is um, different than what the government would have preached to them. Well, in a sense, these are the morals from the Grimm's Brothers fairy tales. Yes. You know, that 
good should be rewarded, bad should be punished, what exactly is good and evil that beauty is so valuable. Mm -hmm. It is still those lessons. And it was derived from those stories. So it's, I mean, you could do a whole thing tracing our morality based on the tales that have influenced our culture. Yeah. Ooh, I'm excited to talk about Dragon Prince too. Relate this all back. I hope everyone else is enjoying the uh, the pairings we're doing because I find it a, a better way to understand the things we're talking about. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey, missing Kyle Willoughby. We are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And I can be found at James Foey Jr., that's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find our wise co-host, Kyle Willoughby, at Klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. I'm just Doc. He's... He's my spirit animal. (laughs) (laughs) And he's very charming, so good for you. (laughs) I'll take it. Um, Our producer is, I guess, both of us this week. Yeah. Yeah, and we're pretty cool. I'd say we're beautiful like Snow White. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) No one's keeping me in their house just on that. (laughs) Our logo is done by Patty Highland. And I want to say that she has the spirit of the evil queen. Not that she's evil, but like the. Um, I mean, she's awful, but she's so cool. She's, she's impressive, as cool as regardless the queen. of her moral yeah. stance. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, and I think, I think he would be sleepy. He does work really, really hard. It's yeah. a de- he's got a depression era work ethic to tie it all back in. Right, not quite the plucky <laughs> Snow White attitude, but he has the work ethic. Certainly does. This is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you with Dragon Prince in two weeks.